Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 39. This morning we're going to start our our study of the life of Joseph, kind of a welcome relief after looking at Jacob. Uh, You know, stretch of of Genesis with uh, Jacob is is pretty rough. Um, Joseph, on the other hand, is a, is a, a tower in the Old Testament. He's, he's this incredible example of, of faithfulness to God. Next to Moses and Jesus himself, Joseph becomes greatest deliverer in the Bible, literally delivering his family from starvation and death. Not only his whole family, he delivers the entire nation of Egypt, the surrounding peoples. This, this one man, this one righteous man becomes a, an amazing rescuer, deliverer of, of people. But of course, Joseph didn't know that when he was in the midst of his trials, did he? We know the end of the story. Joseph didn't know the whole story. He was just a young man, about 17 years old, when the story begins, who's just trying to make his way through life. Not realizing that God is shaping him and molding him and, and, and creating in him the capacity to deliver hundreds of thousands, millions of people. And we're going to pick up our story in Genesis chapter 39, beginning in verse 1. It says, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. So why was Joseph in Egypt? Simplest explanation is that his family was an absolute mess. If you were out for spring break last week, Kevin taught us the story of Simeon and Levi slaughtering the Shechemites. Remember their sister Dinah was, was raped by Shechem. And so there needed to be justice. Shechem wanted to marry Dinah, and so they told the Shechemites, well, we'll we'll let you marry as long as all of the men in your area get circumcised. And so they all agreed. They all got circumcised, and while they were in their weakness, Simeon and Levi went in and they killed all of the men. And not just Shechem, killed all of the men. We skipped over the story of Judah Judah sleeping with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, because he thought she was a prostitute. And we skipped over the story of Reuben, the firstborn son of Jacob, who should have been the leader of his family, sleeping with one of his father's wives. But, you know, it's just, it's just a lot of rough stuff going on in this family. It's a, an incredibly broken family. And we say to ourselves, where, where, where was Jacob? Where was their father in all of this? Jacob was silent. Jacob knew everything that was going on, but he didn't raise his voice. He didn't discipline his sons. He didn't give direction to his family. He largely rejected his wayward sons, but he did have one son that he really loved, and he wanted to make sure that everybody knew that was the favorite son. I want you to turn back a couple chapters, Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37 and verse 1. It says, Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. And Joseph was 17 years of age when he was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a very colored tunic. So I want to make sure that everybody knows who my favorite is, and so I'm going to make him a coat, and on the back I'm going to embroider favorite, right? Make no mistake about it. Just as I didn't love Leah, but I loved Rachel, I don't love you, but I do love him. Imagine how the other brothers felt. Verse 4, it says, brothers saw, it was obvious, that their father loved Joseph more than all his brothers, so they hated him. They couldn't even speak to him on friendly terms, let alone the fact that they were all no-load, misfits, broken-down, young men, immoral, and Joseph was tattling on them. A lot of reasons for conflict in the family. Verse 5, it says, then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, please listen to this dream which I have had, for behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up. And also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. (laughs) His brother said to him, are you actually going to reign over us? Are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. The picture we get of Joseph is certainly a 
a good young man, a, a righteous young man, but maybe a bit naive, right? He has a second dream, and in his dream, the sun, the moon, and the stars, stars representing the brothers, the sun and the moon representing mom and dad, all are bowing down to him. And he tells not only his brother, he also tells his mom and his dad, they're like, are you serious? They hated him. The brothers hated him. And so one day, Jacob sent Joseph again out into the fields to bring back a report because he knew that his sons probably were misbehaving out there. That's why he sent him. Could, could you find out what's going on and see if I need to take corrective action? So he sends Joseph out again, and as Joseph is walking in, walking up to his brothers, they see him, they say, here comes the dreamer. You know, there's an easy way for, him to, for us to make sure he never rules over us, and that is we just kill him. Reuben, firstborn, tries to step up a little bit. He says, oh, you know, let's not, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him into the pit when he gets here, thinking he could come back later and rescue Joseph out of the pit. So Joseph's, Joseph, Joseph arrives and they, they beat him. And they beat him and they strip off that coat, that symbol of his favoritism, and throw him down into the pit. He's frightened, he's scared, he's thirsty, he's hungry, he cries out, he begs. And what do they do? They just sit down and have a party. Ignoring him. Somewhere in that time, Reuben has, has gone off, probably look at some of the sheep, and in the meantime, a group of traders comes through. And they say, you know, better idea, rather than kill him, let's get, make a little money off of him, let's sell him. So they pull him out of the pit, thinking he's rescued, instead he's sold. Reuben comes back, he says, what, what in the world, what, can, what have you done? This is going to break our father's heart. And they say, well... Well, let's break his heart a little bit less. Let's just tell him Joseph died. That way we won't have any guilt on us. And they take the coat and they tear it all up and they put blood all over it. They go back to their father and they say, Dad, this coat looks familiar. (laughs) Isn't this the favorite son's coat? Isn't this Joseph's? And Jacob's heart is broken. Thinks his son is torn to shreds. The other boys think nothing of selling their brother, breaking their father's heart. The family is an utter and absolute mess. So from a human perspective, the reason that Joseph is down in Egypt is because his brothers and family is a mess and they sold him. But what we know is the end of the story. The reason that Joseph is in Egypt is because this family needed to be rescued. And God needed to send someone ahead to rescue them, not just physically from the famine. That's a little more obvious. But he needed, to, he needed to protect this family that was self-destructing. They were becoming more and more and more like the people of the land. They were tempted to marry the people of the land. They were beginning to worship idols. Later we're told that they have to cast away their idols. Why? Because they're not just worshiping the Lord. They're worshiping the gods of the people around them. And so God has to take them out of that location and put them in Egypt so that he can isolate them and protect them from themselves. Because when they get in Egypt, the Egyptians don't interact with them socially. And they don't interact with them religiously. And so God is able to guard and protect his people so that they can become not just a family, but a nation. Because remember, the issue fundamentally wasn't a a concern over racial intermarriage. But the racial intermarriage represented a rejection of God and a worship of the false gods. And so God isolates his people. And so we know that Joseph is down in Egypt not simply because his family sent him down there, but because his family needed to be rescued and delivered. Joseph becomes this incredible really prototype of Jesus Christ, one who suffers and through his sufferings brings deliverance. And so really that's what we're going to look at over the next three weeks. The righteous rescue broken lives by refusing first the temptation to give in to temptation of the flesh. Refusing to give in to the temptation to give up, to despair. And by refusing the temptation to get even and instead Extend forgiveness. So men and women, God rescued you from sin, not just to get you to heaven someday. That's not why God rescued you. God, God rescued you so that you would become a rescuer, so that you could become 
a deliverer. And so even now, right now, God is shaping and molding your life. And you can't see the end of the story, right? You're in chapter 39, not chapter 50. You don't see the end of the story, but God is shaping and he's molding so that you can be qualified to be one who rescues others. In order to do so, you're going to have to go through all of these same trials and tribulations and testing and temptations that Joseph did. Temptation to give in to your flesh. A temptation to give up when it gets hard and you can't see the end. That temptation to get even when others have wronged you. And so where do we begin? I want you to read with me again back in chapter 39 and verse 2. Genesis chapter 39, verse 2. It says, the Lord was with Joseph. And so he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him. And how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house. And all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about from the time that he made him overseer in his house. And over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned. So in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him there, he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. What I want you to notice first, before we look at Joseph's response to a specific temptation, is I want you to notice that Joseph is busy. The greatest, greatest guardian we have against giving in to temptations of our flesh is to be busy about good things. Joseph is faithfully executing his duties as a servant. His mind is occupied. His hands are occupied. His body is occupied. Joseph is occupied doing good things, executing his duties as a servant. What happens? God blesses him. It says he prospers. He is successful. Everything he puts his hand to is successful. And he rises up through the ranks. He starts as the lowliest of slaves, 17-year-old Hebrew boy who probably doesn't even know the language, but he works hard. He works diligently. He does what he should do without complaint, and he rises through the ranks, and pretty soon he's actually in the house. He's not living with the slaves any longer. He is living in Potiphar's house, and he is over all the other slaves. He's over everything that Potiphar owns in his household and everything that he owns in his field. He is a blessing. And why did God choose Abraham's family? Do you remember? Genesis chapter 12, this is where we started. Genesis chapter 12, they were chosen so that they would be a blessing. God would bless them so that they could be a blessing. But back in the land, after the Shechemites were all murdered, Jacob comes to his sons and he says, you have made me odious in the eyes of the people. I'm not a blessing, I'm a curse to the people. But now Joseph is down in Egypt and he is being a blessing. Joseph is doing what Joseph should be doing. And that is a protection for him from sin. But it's not a perfect protection, right? Temptation still comes and finds Joseph. I want you to read with me in verse, the end of verse 6. It says, now Joseph was handsome in form and in appearance. That's just a parenthetical statement. It basically just says, now Joseph was a target. Right? I mean, Joseph, Joseph was on the poster at Gold's Gym. He, he had, I mean, his, his face, his smile. I mean, even before braces, he's just, man, he's a looker. He's got six-pack out. He he's built and he's... he's He's a physical specimen. This is only said of one other person in the entire Bible, this description. You know who it was? His mother. He's got great genes. He's a target. Verse 7. Came about after these events that his master's wife looked looked at him with desire. And she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household were inside. She caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. The specific temptation that Joseph is dealing with is sexual temptation. And it's not subtle. 
In Hebrew, it's just two words. It says, lie with me in my translation. I could paraphrase it like this. It's sex now. She's aggressive. She's persistent. He says, no, the first time, it says day after day after day. She says, sleep with me, sleep with me, sleep with me, sleep with me. Over and over and over again. Finally, she catches him when he's by himself, and she grabs him. And the clothing that they wore were, would have been a, a pair of shorts that came about down to the knees. Remember, this is Egypt. It's hot. He wears a pair of shorts, and he wears a, a shirt that pulled over. That was his tunic that came down. She grabs him and tears his clothes off. I mean, it, this, is, this is aggressive, in-his-face sexual temptation. And men and women, this is, this is something that we face in our culture. Sexual temptation is overt and aggressive in our culture, and it is devastating our culture today. I want to give you just a few illustrations. In 41% of marriages, one or both spouses admit to a physical or emotional affair, and men and women cheated about the same rate. 41% of the marriages in our country have marital unfaithfulness, whether physical or emotional. By the age 20, 75% of Americans have had premarital sex. That number rises to 95% by age 44. (laughs) I couldn't believe that number, actually, when I found it. So I searched everywhere I could, and it was confirmed in study after study after study. By age 44, 95% of Americans have participated in premarital sex. That means that premarital sex has, has reached deeply into the church, people. 64% of men and 18% of women view pornography every week. Every week. That's that's addiction. That's epidemic. Bad for us. Terrible for our kids. 51% of boys, 32% of girls have viewed pornography, pornography for the first time before the age of 13. That means they view it for the first time in grade school. American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers. There is such an academy. Okay. They report that 56% of divorce cases involve one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. Wow. The U.S. Department of Justice said, Never before in the history of telecommunications media in the United States has so much indecent and obscene material been so easily accessible by so many minors in so many American homes with so few restrictions. It is everywhere. And not just the physical temptation to commit adultery any longer, but pornographic images, homosexuality is everywhere. We live in this incredibly sensual, aggressively sensual society, and it is killing the church. And so the temptation that Joseph faced was, was explicitly sexual. But, you know, this, this applies to all areas of lust of the flesh, men and women. You know, you may say this morning, I'm outside of those percentages. That's really not an area of temptation for me. Okay, well, what are the areas where you are tempted? Do you know yourself? When you're, when you're hurting, when you're angry, when you're lonely, when you're tired, when you're hungry, where do you go? Do, do you go to food? Do you go to drink? Do you go to the mall? Where, where do you go? Okay. You take this message and what we learn from Joseph and apply it to the passions of your flesh, many of which may be fine in and of themselves, but when we don't master them, when we don't control them, when we don't rule over them, they rule over us. They, they destroy our lives and we cannot be a blessing to others. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul said, I subdue my body, I make it my slave, so that after preaching to others, I myself may not be disqualified. And he's not saying disqualified from getting into heaven. Heaven is a free gift. He's saying, I don't want to be disqualified for what I was called to, which is to be a rescuer, a deliverer, one who has an impact on the lives of others. So what do I do? Literally, he says, I blacken my eye, I dot my eye, I, I, I subject my body so that my physical passions are not ruling over me, but I rule over them. So, where do we begin? I'm going to give you four ideas from Joseph's life. Four, four, four lessons from Joseph's life. First is this. Reject excuses. Right now, just 
Make up your mind. There is no excuse for sin that is legitimate. If anybody had a right to make excuses for sin, it was Joseph, right? One excuse he could have made. I have a right to be angry. My entire family has, has rejected me. My brothers sold me into slavery, and they only did that because they didn't want to kill me. They thought they could make some money off of me. It seems that God has abandoned me. I'm, I'm outside of the promised land, and God had given me this vision. He gave me two dreams in which I would be ruling over my family, but my family doesn't even know that I'm alive any longer. I may not see them. I have a right to be angry at God. And some of you this morning are angry at God. You know, and I understand that, but that's not a safe place to stay. Because you can't see the end of the story, and you don't see eternity, and you don't know all the good that God is working, even through the trials in your life and what you've suffered. Joseph refuses to remain in self-pity. He does not stay angry. No one will know. And if this was ever true of anyone, it was sure true of Joseph, right? No one will know. Mom and dad aren't around. My brothers aren't around. Not even anybody who speaks my language down here. But he knew that God would know. Everyone is doing it. (laughs) Fact of the matter is it's well documented that Promiscuity was rampant among the slave class in Egypt. Everyone was doing it. Everyone. I don't have a choice. It's my master's wife. I have to do what she tells me to do. If I don't, she could sell me again. She could have me put to death. She could demote me. She could do all of these things to me. I really don't have a choice. All illegitimate excuses, none of which did Joseph embrace. Reject excuses. There is no excuse for sin. No valid excuse. Second, rehearse God's blessings. Look with me again in chapter 39, verse 6. It says, So Potiphar left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. With him there, he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. But Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and said to him, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. He has put all that he owns into my charge. Now, for a slave, Joseph had a great life. And he, he's not bragging here, he's recounting his blessings. And what we see over and over and over in Joseph's life is he gives all of the credit for everything in his life to God. Potiphar knows the name of Yahweh. He knows the name of the Lord. Where did he learn it? There are no other Yahweh worshipers in all of Egypt except Joseph. He learns it from Joseph because Joseph has said, you see the blessings in your household, Pharaoh, that are coming through me? They're not coming through me. They're coming from God through me. God is the source. Joseph didn't think of God for the first time when this temptation hit him. He had been rehearsing his blessings over and over and over and over and over. All that he had was a gift of God, and he knew it, and he told people about it. And that is transforming, men and women. It is a protection against sin. It is a guardian against sin. Notice what he says in chapter 39. At the end of verse 9, he says, how then could I do this great evil? In other words, I've thought about it. In light of all of the blessings of God, how could I commit this sin? That really doesn't make sense when all that I have is a gift from God. R.T. Kendall once wrote, nobody is exempt from temptation, but if we do not have a love for God that is greater than the intensity of that temptation, we will give in. Did you catch that? Nobody is exempt from temptation. But if we do not have a love for God that is greater than the intensity of that temptation, we will give in to the sin. And so when we rehearse all of the blessings that God has placed in our lives, that fans into flames our love for God, and it pours cold water on the power of temptation. Practice thanksgiving. When Satan came to Eve in the garden... Eve wasn't ready. Eve didn't have her answer prepared. Eve didn't have her no ready and her her list of arguments as to why she should say no. She didn't have any of that ready. And so Satan focused her attention on that one tree that she didn't have and she couldn't step back and say, yeah, but, but I've been told to eat, eat, eat freely of all of the trees. No, how could I do this in light of all that God has blessed me with? How could I do this great evil against God? No, she couldn't say that. And so she was deceived because she didn't have a grateful heart. She didn't have a grateful heart. 
I'm going to challenge you this week. Write down your blessings from God. I want you to add something to the list every day. I want you to do it for a month. Okay? Every day for a month. You're not writing right now, most of you. said. So I want you to write this down. This is your application, okay? Write it down. Rehearse your blessings. Third, reflect on the cost. It says, Joseph refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, I've thought about this. With me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. He's put all that he owns in my charge. There's no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? There is a cost to sin. Temptation diminishes the cost. It tries to get you to ignore the cost. But here are a few of the costs. Giving in breaks trust with others. Joseph valued the confidence that Potiphar placed in him. And he didn't want to lose that. Even though the man was a pagan. Maybe especially because he was a pagan. Joseph had earned his trust and he didn't want to lose that trust. People are counting on us. You need to think about that before sin. Think about it. Giving in destroys my ability to bless others. When I am captured by sin, my flesh has taken hold, then I am thinking about myself. I'm preoccupied with myself. I'm not outwardly focused any longer. It destroys my ability to bless others, which is why God has called me to himself, not just to get me into eternity, but to allow me to be one who blesses, one who rescues, one who delivers. Third, giving in breaks God's heart. Notice what he says again. How then could I do this great evil? And sin against God. There are bookends on Joseph's story here in chapter 39. It says God was with him. God was with him. God was with him. God hadn't left him. God wasn't just in the promised land. God was also in Egypt. God will later be in prison with him. God is with him. His presence is there. All sin, he says, it's ultimately against God. Because God is my maker. God is my creator. God is the one who gave me life. He gave me a body. This is the temple. This is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I don't want to break the heart of God. Fourth, giving in breaks down my will. Hey, no, nobody really rushes into moral failure. The huge moral failures, sexual failures, or big failures of the flesh happen slowly and progressively. Little choices that we make all along the way. You don't just wake up and collapse. The small choices along the way break down the will. The will is like a muscle, okay? And when you, you, you feed it properly and you exercise it properly, it grows in strength. But when you neglect it or ignore it or you use the will to choose things that are unhealthy, you destroy the strength of the will. Now, this last year, I, I read a book called The Willpower Instinct. And I'm not, I'm not recommending it without reservation. It is a thoroughly non-Christian book. The worldview is... is uh, completely non-Christian, but the author and the scientists that she quotes make a lot of interesting observations about the relationship between the mind and the brain as a human organ and the rest of the body and the choices that we make. I want you to listen to one quote here from the book. Some neuroscientists go so far as to say that we have one brain but two minds, or even two people living inside our mind. There's the version of us that acts on impulse and seeks immediate gratification, and the version of us that controls our impulses and delays gratification to protect our long-term goals. What does that sound like? You stumbled on Romans 7. Genius, right? Written centuries ago, millennia ago, but you spent millions of dollars studying to come up with this. I mean... Ask any person on the street. Are you tugged two directions? Absolutely. And when you feed the spirit, the spirit grows. How do you feed the spirit? Rehearse your blessings. Reflect on the cost. Benefit and cost. A few months ago, Tim and I were talking about sin and temptation and righteousness. And he made a statement to me that I will tell you, it is stuck in my mind and I've thought about it. Every week I've thought about it. He made the statement. He said, I love saying no to myself. I've never heard anybody say it like that before. He says, I love saying no to myself. 
Like, well, okay, ex- expound on this. Could be an illustration someday. Expound on this for me, Tim. He said, well, you know, I, I love thinking about all of the blessings and the good that God has done in my life. I enjoy thinking about that. And then I stop and I think about how I could all get, give all of that away by choosing to sin. And so I love saying no to this and saying yes to God's blessings. So second half of your application. On one side of the sheet of paper, you list all of the blessings and you're adding to it every day for this month. On the other side, I want you to begin to write out the costs. The cost to you, the cost to others, the cost to God, the cost to this body of believers, the cost to the community, okay? Benefits and blessings and costs, okay? Literally, literally. Because that transforms the mind and strengthens the will. Now, fourth, remove ourselves from temptation. As we look at this fourth one, if I could have the men head to the back and get communion prepared for us. The fourth one is this. Remove ourselves from temptation. Look with me in verse 10. It says, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or to even be with her. As soon as he saw what kind of woman she was, and she kept hounding him for sex, and then she kept just trying to be around him, he he decided, no, I'm not even going to be near this woman. I'm not even going to be around her. It's not just that I won't sleep with her. I will not be near her. This is the principle that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 13. Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Put up a barrier. Obviously, Joseph could not quit his job, but he could avoid being around this person. You need to erect barriers to temptation and barriers to sin. It may be so drastic that you need to quit your job and start a new job. Really. If you are constantly hounded by temptation and you realize that your, your flesh is not uh, able to withstand the, this temptation at this point in time, it may be that you need to actually change the place where you work day in and day out. You may need to just stop. Or you may need to have someone go through your house and remove all the Cosmo magazines. Or you may need to have someone go with you to the grocery store and shop so the food isn't actually in the house when you're tempted. It's pretty hard to remove the entire internet from all of your life, isn't it? It's everywhere. But maybe you need to get rid of your smartphone and get a wise phone. Remember those ones? They just flip up. There's no internet. Texting takes forever. Okay. Or put a filter. Put accountability. Somebody knows everywhere, everywhere that you go. Okay. Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. And even when you do that, you know, sometimes sin will leap over those walls and it'll come find you. That's what Potiphar's wife did. She chased after Joseph. She found Joseph. And so what did he do? He was gone, right? Man, he just, he hit the door. He let her tear off his clothes And he ran out of the house. And you know, a lot of times I think we simply do not take sin and temptation nearly serious enough. I once read, God is looking for a few good cowards. Fear it. Because it will destroy your life. Your flesh will destroy your life. It's the greatest enemy. And it's hidden within you. And it's always cropping up. It's always lusting, longing. Get as radical as you possibly can get. So that you're not devastated by sin, so that you can be a blessing to God and honor others. Do good. This morning you may be sitting there and you're just like, ugh, man, temptation has been hounding me and I feel worn out, I feel beaten down. I want you to know this, you are not alone. We all dress up a bit for Sunday mornings, but every person brings in here discouragement, frustration from being tempted and beaten down, some uh, even guilt and shame because you have given in in the past. You are not alone. You are not alone. And you are not beyond hope. Hey, the sins that, that you're struggling with now, the temptations you're struggling with, that is why Christ died, right? And there's no sin too great that the blood of Christ doesn't cover it and forgive it. And I want you to remember that as we, as we take the, the, the bread and the cup. 
This is the gospel message that no matter how deep your sin, no matter how pervasive your sin, Christ died for all of your sins for all time. And the moment that you believe in him, that debt is removed forever. And you have life that lasts forever. You're not alone. You're not without hope. And you're not without power. The resurrection proved that Jesus Christ conquered not just the penalty of sin, he also conquered the power of sin. But you need to start today. You need to start today. So if I can't have the men come forward as they serve us communion, I want you just to reflect on one thing. Ask the Spirit of God to probe in your heart and your mind to see is there an area of temptation or sin that you've allowed to dig deep and what steps do you need to take this week to root it out? Hey, we'll wait till we're all served and then we'll take the cup and the bread together. Hebrews 10, it says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Jesus comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you've not desired, but a body you have prepared. Then I said, Behold, I've come, and the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. Nothing can take away the debt of sin uh, except the broken body, the suffering, and the blood of Jesus, his death. Let's take the bread together. Let's take the cup. Jesus, we thank you for your body broken for us. Thank you for your suffering, your blood shed, so that we could be rescued, uh, not just from the penalty of sin, but from its power, so that we could join you in, in entering into others' lives in holiness to help rescue them from the penalty and the power of sin. I pray, Father, this morning that we would we would know the power of Jesus again in a fresh and new way. Father, we thank you for sending us a rescuer, a deliverer. Thank you, Father, that his work was perfect on our behalf. There is no debt of sin that we carry because of Jesus. And that there is no temptation that is too great for us to overcome because of Jesus. I pray, Father, this this week you would refresh, renew, and begin this transformation process in our hearts and our minds. That we would love you so deeply that sin would seem utterly foolish. Father, I pray for those who feel, feel broken down and discouraged. That your spirit would speak to their hearts, lift up their eyes again, fresh to you great God, Savior. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Don't forget, all of your blessings and the costs for the next month, I'm going to check. This is Matt Morton. I'm here with Blake Jennings, and we are going to talk about your sermon from Genesis 39. Uh, You and Brian talked about that passage yesterday, and it tells the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And you particularly uh, centered on the issue of temptation and, and more specifically the issue of sexual temptation which is an enormous issue in our culture. It's, it's a huge problem and a huge struggle, I know, for many of those who are listening. And one of the challenges that emerges when we talk about sexual temptation in our culture that I, I want to ask you to address as we start is that, you know, it's easy to believe that if I create the right safeguards in my life, maybe an internet filter, or I just don't go to the wrong part of town or to the wrong types of stores, I can avoid sexual temptation. Uh, And what we're finding as we talk to people is that while that was true, perhaps 50 years ago, or even 30 years ago, that's really not the case anymore. We are so saturated with sexual temptation because of the internet, because of the presence of smartphones everywhere, that it's often nearly impossible to avoid it. Um, So to a person that feels frustrated by that and feels that they can't get away from that source of temptation, Blake, how would you respond to that problem? Well, you're feeling what Joseph felt. 
because that's precisely the environment that Joseph is in in the passage in Genesis 39. If you look at the details, Potiphar's wife comes after Joseph day after day, so there's he's not getting any break from temptation. And at the climax of the temptation, when she really comes after him physically, he's actually doing his job. He, he had no choice but to be there. He He could not neglect his duties. And so... I think that when we look at our society, we, we realize that um, just by the, the way that things have progressed, we're living in Joseph's reality. So sexual temptation is never far away. It is actually helpful to realize that and kind of get over that hump a little bit, because as long as you believe that, well, I can just tweak my environment so that I'm not exposed to it, you're going to be frustrated. I, I don't think that's possible right. anymore in, in America. Now, there's things that you can do. I think for a lot of us, we've found uh, some helpful tools on our computers, helpful tools on smartphones. There's programs like Covenant Eyes as an accountability logging program. So it sends any website you've been to on your computer to a accountability partner, X3 Watch, just X3 Watch. Uh, has some software for both computers and phones that do the same thing. It's not filtering, just sending reports to accountability partners. Ever Accountable for Android devices works similarly. All of those are helpful. None of those are perfect. And so you just have to recognize that. You can defeat all of them, and even at their best, they're going to let things slide by. And even if you do great with one device, there's other devices everywhere. I mean, the Internet is is truly becoming ubiquitous in our lives, and so we can't filter it everywhere. So do what you can to try to limit temptation, but recognize that's the world that you live in. So because of that, it's extremely important that you put into practice the the habits, the four habits that we saw in Joseph's life that we talked about yesterday. And it's also important that, and, and Matt, you and I have talked about this a lot before, because we live in a world where temptation is always going to be present, don't just focus on avoiding temptation, focus also on doing good things. That's one of the traps that I think particularly people caught up in temptation really forget is that life isn't so much about what you avoid. It's about the good stuff that you do. So be part of a Bible study, serve in the church, be growing into leadership, have fun with your friends, have hobbies that you enjoy, exercise, do positive things that can help you focus on on righteous things that are a blessing to you rather than just always focusing on trying to avoid this temptation. Right. And I think one of the things that uh, we often forget even about Joseph is that he was, it wasn't like he was in a job that he had voluntarily chosen. In other words, mm -hmm. he couldn't just quit and go take another job. He was, he was essentially a prisoner mm -hmm. and he was placed in Potiphar's house. And one of the things that's so great about his story is it's clear that when that moment of temptation comes, Joseph is responding based on values that are already right. really yeah, deep within him. He was ready for it. Yeah, he's ready for it. He's been prepared. And, and in fact, when you hear the reasoning for why he doesn't sleep with Potiphar's wife, it has a lot to do with his relationship with Potiphar, the trust that he's been given, and then his relationship with God. And mm -hmm. so, like you said, he doesn't simply see it as an issue of avoiding something that is bad or wrong or dirty, but actually it's an issue of... Uh, in order to relate appropriately to God and others, I cannot um, look at or take another man's wife, and mm -hmm. that that would be sinful. So he has these deep within him, and I think that's uh, a really good thing for those of us who are parents mm -hmm. to remember mm -hmm. that, um, you know, when I was a kid, when you were a kid, which has been a while back, it was it was probably <laughs> as long as in, Brian. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> in some ways, it was. It was a simpler time. There was not the internet. Uh, in order to find pornography, for example, one had to go to a seedy part of town or go to a bookstore and actually buy it and you'd experience shame. It's a lot different now. And our kids are exposed, we're finding at much, much younger ages potentially mm -hmm. to pornography. Uh, you cannot simply assume that they'll be okay in this area of sexuality until they are 13, 14, 15. Um, what we're seeing is that you really need to have those kinds of begin having those kinds of conversations with them about the biblical basis for healthy sexuality and godly sexuality. You need to start those when they're five, six, seven. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean you have to be graphic or detailed, but just the beginning understanding that your body belongs to God. Uh, the basic differences between men and women are designed by God. 
and that there's a certain sacredness to the way that you've been created that isn't intended to be violated by mm -hmm. an unhealthy sexuality. So I think that's real critical. And I don't know if you want to weigh in on that at all, mm -hmm. but I, I know as a dad who has uh, two daughters in elementary school and then a son just under that, I, I'm, I'm finding that we're already having to begin to think about those issues at a much younger age than I think uh, my parents or grandparents needed to start thinking right. about it. Right. I, I think that we as parents should assume that our children are going to see something pornographic by seven, eight, nine years old. Now, that won't happen for all children, but statistically, it's 10 to 15 percent, I think, by by eight years old. So that could be your child, uh, exposure through a friend, something at school, something at, at a relative's house. In which they may not tell you about. And, and that's, yeah, that's really the key. I, I think that as parents, if we can talk about it proactively and help our children understand, at some point you will see this. And, and when you see this, the important thing is to just come talk to me about it. You're not in trouble. It's it's going to be okay, and and we want to get to talk to you about that. So I think that, like you're saying, if you if parents can be on the front end of it, talk about it in age appropriate ways. But the most important thing is help your children understand they're they're not in trouble if somebody shows them this. And, and the important thing is to come talk to you. You you want to be the one who gets to interact in their lives. But to do that, you, you just got to assume they're going to see it. So get out in front of it. So when they do see it, they come to you and you get to continue to talk through with them about it. Right. And there's a, there's a great set of resources that I know have been helpful to my wife and me, as we've talked with our kids. It's a book series called The Story of Me. And it's actually several books. Uh, and they begin at a level that is age appropriate, actually, for those who are three to five, mm -hmm. um, just discussing some real basic concepts about who we are, how God made us, the way that our, our bodies are made. And then they advance from there for those five to eight and then eight to 11 and then 12 to 14 uh, and discuss these issues of sexuality from a biblical perspective, because actually it's really true that Kids make decisions about how they will respond and use their bodies uh, long before you actually have a real detailed conversation with them about sexuality. They mm -hmm. watch how you understand uh, the way that you treat one another as a uh, husband and wife. They watch that. Uh, they watch the way that you treat them. They listen to your value system. And much more like Joseph, they're internalizing all these values from the time that they are very young. And so the earlier that we can begin as parents to think about those issues, the better. Because again, it's not any longer where you can wait till they're 14, 15 and sit down and have one conversation or toss a book on their bed and expect that that's going to mm -hmm. fix the issue. You really need to be thinking about these issues of sin and temptation and sexuality all the way through. Right. Right. While we're on the subject of books, you've mentioned before um, a, a resource that you find very useful for anybody who's trying to learn how to really uh, fight back against temptation. Yeah, there's a great book by Erwin Lutzer, L-U-T-Z-E-R, and it's called Getting to Know, Getting to Know, N-O, uh, How to Say No to a Stubborn Habit, I think is the subtitle. Uh, just a great book that deals not only with the external uh, issues surrounding temptation, but also the issues of the heart. Um, a lot of what you talked about, that mm -hmm. uh, temptation often springs up from an ungrateful heart. Or it often springs up when we begin to believe there's some excuse. God hasn't given me everything I deserve. Um, and then I begin to make excuses for my sin and I fall into a pattern. And uh, I felt it was a really helpful book from two directions. One, to recognize your uh, temptation springs really primarily from a failure to honor and worship God appropriately. Mm -hmm. But then secondly, uh, the issue that it brought up that was very helpful is you're not defined by your sin and your temptations. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really key. Like you said, that it's very easy to get into a, a mindset of saying my spiritual life revolves around trying to avoid these temptations. Mm -hmm. As soon as we do that, in a sense, we begin to lose the battle because really your spiritual life revolves around knowing and following Jesus. Mm -hmm. The more that we fill our minds and hearts with the things of Christ, the less sin and temptation will become appealing to us. Mm -hmm. I think that's an excellent point. I think it's so helpful for people to have a book like that that can walk them through some of the deeper issues and recognize that often sexual sin like lust or pornography or, or going too far with a boyfriend or girlfriend, it, it often springs out of deeper things that if you'll 
address those deeper things proactively, you can actually see temptation become less frequent and, and often less severe in your life. For a lot of people, pornography is less about the, the sex and more about an escape from some stress, some depression, some loneliness, something going on that's deeper. And sexual sin provides a, a moment of relief from whatever that, that stressor or that pain is in your life. And so just dealing with the sexual temptation won't ultimately get to where it comes from. So I, I yeah, highly recommend that book and highly recommend talking to other people about those deeper issues. And let me share a few resources. If you, if you find that you're just really struggling with sexual sin, um, a few different things that you can do. First of all, I encourage you to talk to a a mentor, uh, an older friend in your life, a parent, a pastor, um, somebody who can help you to think through um, why you are giving in, um, help you to, to maybe surface some of those deeper issues that you can be working on. Uh, that can always be helpful in our lives. Uh, sin is stronger when we're silent about it. So if we're willing to talk to somebody about it, it can be really helpful. Second, if you find that sexual sin is becoming an addiction for you, so by addiction, I mean that you just, you can't say no. Even if you want to say no, you just, you really can't say no. It's it's happening regularly in your life. Uh, we have a program called Celebrate Recovery. It meets at the Southwood campus Tuesdays at 7 p.m. It has separate groups for men and women. Uh, it's it's uh, very confidential, and it's designed um, kind of around a 12-step program model, but but a, a Christian version of it. It's, it's going to help you actually getting to what you were saying, Matt, to, to begin to once again really worship the Lord and walk with Him as you begin to recover from that area of addiction in your life. So really recommend that you check out Celebrate Recovery at Southwood on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. We've got a lot of people in there because this is such a common issue. Good. Yeah. So, and and that just highlights in all of this, the key that uh, struggling with temptation is universal. Mm -hmm. Everybody struggles with temptation. And I think what separates those in the long run who consistently give in from those who make progress and walk with the Lord is often one's willingness to admit their struggle and seek help. And so uh, that's really what we're encouraging. If this is an ongoing struggle uh, here at Grace, you can talk with one of the pastors. We can recommend a counselor to you. Celebrate Recovery is a huge help. Uh, but we would encourage you, just as uh, we see in the life of Joseph, don't be afraid to acknowledge the temptation and then find a way to flee from it and seek uh, a new pattern and a different pattern for your life. So uh, we will uh, stop there as I know we're about out of time. Blake, thank you for your, uh, weighing in on these issues today. And uh, you can always find more information, more resources on our website at grace-bible.org as along with the sermon audio and uh, any other uh, resources that might be helpful to you. 